Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. call the confession today is from Proverbs 28, verse 21. It reads like this, to show partiality is not good, but for a piece of bread a man will do wrong. It's a fundamental error in the administration of justice to consider the parties more than the merits of the cause or the case. Even a small bribe can have disastrous results in the maintenance of order and justice in a society. A good man is always fair. He exercises righteous judgment and avoids corrupting justice or truth. The Bible warns repeatedly against treating people according to their rank, their status, or their importance. Corrupting judgment for family, friends, the rich, the poor, or those who can benefit you. True equity and righteous judgment never considers the persons involved, but looks to the facts and justice of the case. A man at first might require a considerable bribe to cheat justice and compromise his ruling, for his inhibitions against corruption keep him from considering a lesser price. But once our conscience has been seared, it's easier the next time. Soon we are reduced to violating truth for a mere proverbial piece of bread, hardly anything at all. Parents, consider your own partiality. Do you mistrust a friend, a teacher, a tutor, or a coach? who criticizes your child due to your sentimental attachments and affections for your own? And children, how do you treat your closest neighbors? Are you fair, kind, and loving to each of your brothers and sisters? Are, you more, are we more merciful overlooking the faults of friends than of strangers? In the church, we are to be gracious in serving uh, to, to, I'm sorry. In the church, we are more gracious, are we more gracious in serving to successful church members than to others. Church leaders especially are warned against preferences and partiality in their decisions and judgment, as we see in the qualifications in 1 Timothy. Elders and deacons ought to be leading by their example. And Christ is a perfect example of impartiality. So trust him. Follow him. Jesus spoke in John 5, 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. Let this be our mind as well. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Please kneel where you are. Despair and hopelessness are common problems that people often have. You may have known somebody who despaired. You may have despaired yourself at times. You think, man, what is going on in my life? What is going on? And and you feel hopeless and, and things like that. And when we get into these situations where we have practically given up hope, the question that we always need to ask as Christians is where do we turn? Where do we turn? You know, imagine that you were well-liked by your father, 
um, but your siblings, your brothers, didn't like you all that much, right? At some point, you're out with your brothers, and they decide to kill you, and then they decide, well, maybe that's a little extreme, and so they throw you into a pit and eventually sell you to some slave traders, right? And you, as you go out and you're with these slave traders and you're going into the land of Egypt, would you be thinking, what in the world is the Lord your God doing here? Right? What is going on? And then while a slave, because God is blessing you, all that you do prospers, and you see the goodness of God overflowing to you. And everything's going great, but then all of a sudden you get falsely accused for attempting to ravage your master's wife. And you get thrown into prison. And you've got to be thinking, wait a second, Lord. Everything was going well. Right? What, what are you doing? What is going on? Oh, Lord, my God. And then while in prison, because of the Lord's blessing upon you and your leadership skills that he's blessed you with, and you're faithfully serving him, and you're running this, this prison and stuff, it comes to that point where you're running the prison from within, and it's thriving. Then a couple guys from the king's household come in, they get thrown into prison, and you help them out, you give them a, you an interpretation of their dreams and all of those things, and you ask them, when you go back to the king, remember me. Remember my plight in here. And they forget about it. For a couple of years. And you're thinking, Lord, what are you doing? What is going on? You can imagine how Joseph would be led to despair and hopelessness. I mean, over and over again, things in his life go well, and all of a sudden come crashing down. What are you doing, Lord? Would you be questioning what the Lord your God is doing in your life? Would you be led to the despair and hopelessness? And there comes a time when the man from the household, from the king's household, remembers you, and then all of a sudden you go from being a, a slave in prison all the way to being the second in control in the land. You know, from the bottom to the top. It's an amazing story, right? And then, all of a sudden, you see your brothers. Your brothers who had threatened to kill you, some of them wanted to kill you, and the others sold you into slavery, and there they are before you. By faith in God, you're standing there, looking at your brothers, are you able to say in God's providence and by his design that he meant all of these things for good? Right? And say to that, say to your brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Right? Or what about another man who loses his wealth, his children, his animals, and eventually even his health, and he questions what God is doing, right? He's questioning, what are you doing, oh God? I'm a righteous man. All my friends are accusing me. But Lord, I've done nothing wrong. Why do I deserve this? I'm innocent in all this. But then the Lord God Almighty says to him out of the whirlwind, Who are you, O man? Who are you, O man? To question the things of God. The greater knowledge that I have. 
Who is this who darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Where were you when I did this? Right? Job says, I put my hand over the mouth. What am I doing? You're right, oh God. Right? Job was despairing. Right? He was at the point of despair and hopelessness. And he's crying out to God. As likely was Joseph. When they were in such desperate situations, they had such hollow feelings. And you feel that, right? You feel that with them. And you feel alone and isolated. And sometimes we can feel that way as well, right? Wondering, where is God? Where is he? What's going on? But then, this is where we need to be. We are called as Christians, as believers, to look to the character of God, right? To turn and face him. To turn and trust him in his sovereignty, in his providence. That he's working all things together for our good. And it's not just a trite saying, it's true. Even though the circumstances in our lives may not seem like it's true, it is true. Bringing out what's best for us so that we may understand him more. In the midst of those hard situations, though, it's often easy to grow hopeless and close to despair. Right? Because we feel hurt. We feel sad. We feel wounded. We feel broken. But we need to remember who it is that can help us in our time of need. That's what we need to remember. Who it is that can actually help us in our time of need. So let's read the text for today, which is Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Then Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. He said to them, Make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out in all the land. So let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this text. And we thank you for all the texts that we read this morning about how you are the giver of life. And you breathe life into dead bones and raise them up. Oh Lord, you... Give life into dead carcasses and breathe life into them so that they may trust and believe in you. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are still working in these ways yet today, that your name might be proclaimed this day. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord, you are our rock and our foundation. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this account today, we have two people who are close to despairing and are full of hopelessness, right? 
A father whose daughter is sick. Imagine putting yourself in her, her shoes there, or his shoes. Your daughter is sick. She's on the point of death. And, and you, you get that when you combine the accounts of Mark and Luke with this, with this chapter in, in uh, Matthew. And so in Mark 5 and in Luke 8, you see what's going on here in a bigger, broader picture. And this man comes to her, when it comes to Jesus, when his daughter is on the brink of death. She's a daughter in Israel who's suffering. And this father comes to find Jesus. Now, there's also another daughter in Israel who comes. A daughter who's suffering from a lifelong hemorrhage. Okay? She's been bleeding for 12 years. So both of these, this father and this woman, this daughter in Israel, are suffering emotionally. They're beside themselves. But key is where they turn when that, with the faith that they have. Whatever faith that's left in them, where do they turn when they're in these dire straits? To the one who can answer and actually do something to Jesus, okay? And that's key for us. Now, how does this count fit into the, you know, the context of Matthew 8 through 10? Well, when you're in Matthew 8 and 10, you're reading through that, and you see that there's three sets of miracles in these two chapters. And in the first set, Jesus heals a leper, then he heals a paralytic by the word of his mouth that belonged to the centurion, and then he heals a fever. In the second set of miracles, he stills the wind and the wave, and he's showing his power and authority over nature. He casts out a legion of demons. He heals another paralytic. And now with this text here, we move into the third set of miracles where Jesus will heal a woman from bleeding. He raises a girl from the dead. He gives sight to the blind. And as we go on in, the, in chapter 9, he looses the tongue of a mute. Okay? Jesus' authority over all these ailments is astounding. You know, they've come, become so common to us because we read these, you know, and we're reading these, and this is just, yeah, this is a good story and stuff. But these, this is astounding stuff when you stop to think about what's going on here. You've got to put yourself at the feet of these Israelites who are looking at these things, and they're saying, wow. And his disciples were with him in the midst of all of this. It's astounding the authority that Jesus has over all of this, and it amazes people. Now, these miracles that you have, these three sets of miracles, eventually are going to demonstrate that Jesus has filled the messianic requirements that are found in places like Isaiah 35, 1 through 10. Okay, so here's, in part, this is, this is kind of key in Isaiah 35, 1 through 10, which is talking about the Messiah. And here's what it says. Strengthen the weak hands. This is part of the, part of the text. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted... Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. So Jesus is in the process of fulfilling this text right here in Isaiah. So each of these miracles demonstrates the glorious character of God. That when we bring our needs to him, or even when he makes known our needs for him, 
that he is full of compassion and mercy. That's the kind of God that we have here in the scriptures. Now in all of this, Jesus demonstrates he's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our faith. And we must move beyond just assenting to him as Lord. Right? Just saying that, yeah, he's Lord. And move beyond just knowing him. Right? Just knowing him in scriptures and saying, okay, I see all these facts about Jesus. And I believe that he's the son of God. But we, may, we need to go beyond that. We need to move beyond just that. Because all of that, that just equips us to be demons. Right? It needs to go beyond that. It needs to be going beyond. Because the demons give assent to Jesus. They believe who he is. Right? They have knowledge of who he is. They're orthodox in their thinking. But their deeds are darkness and evil. Right? Because they don't have faith. They don't have trust in the living God. They don't have trust in Jesus. They hate Jesus. So we must go and move on to faith and trust. Fiducia. And that's where these two people in the text for today find themselves. Faith is going to make them well. Faith is going to make them well. And Jesus draws attention to faith. The first person we encounter in the account for today is this father of a little girl who comes to Jesus. And he's, in, he's coming to Jesus in faith and desperation. Okay? Faith and desperation. Matthew says things briefly. So Matthew is condensing. He condenses a lot of these, these uh, texts down and, and brings them very condensed. But when we go into the other texts, there's a lot more detail there. Okay? So that's what Matthew does. And he's condensing these things down to make a very basic point. Um, and he's been being directed by the inspiration of the Spirit to do this. That's how God's inspiring him to do this. But when we look at Matthew and, and Luke, or when we look at uh, Luke and Mark, we find a broader picture. All right, so here's, here's Matthew. When he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, worshiped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Okay, so he's coming, and Matthew shows that in the, his text that she's already actually died, right, when, when he arrives. But this is what Mark 5 says. We get more detail. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Jesus went with him and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Okay? So, is there a discrepancy here between the texts? Are they opposed to each other? No. Matthew's just, he's condensing it down. Okay? There's nothing that's in opposition. They're not contradicting each other or anything. Matthew's just telling a portion of that story. Okay? So combining these counts, we see the following. That this man that approached Jesus was a ruler of the synagogue, He's likely the synagogue, which is likely the synagogue that's in Capernaum, that his name was Jairus, that this ruler fell down at the feet of Jesus and worshipped him, that Jairus' daughter was sick to the point of death, 
And that he wanted Jesus to come and lay hands upon her to heal her so that she wouldn't die. And finally, that Jesus and his disciples rose and went with the man. And and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. They were around him. So they're going with this big group of people now. Those are the facts, okay? And there's no discrepancy between Matthew and Mark. Now here's Jairus. He's beside himself for concern about his little 12-year-old daughter. She's dying, okay? She's dying, and he knows it. And he needs help. Now usually these rulers of the synagogues, we see the rulers in opposition to Jesus, right? They're opposed to Jesus, just like the Pharisees and the scribes, but not this man, not this ruler. This ruler sees something in Jesus. He knows Jesus has power. He knows Jesus has authority. And if he is the, 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 the synagogue ruler in Capernaum, he, this is where a lot of the miracles are happening that Jesus is doing, right? He's perhaps witnessed what Jesus has done. He's heard about the things that Jesus has done. And some of the other areas, healing the leper, raising the paralytic, casting out demons, commanding the wind and wave. Surely Jesus, he's thinking, has the power to heal my daughter. Jesus has the power to do that. If he can do all of those things, surely he has the power to heal my daughter. I'm going to him. And I'm going to talk to him. And so he comes to Jesus. He's despairing of anything else that can be done. And he's placing his weak trust and faith in Jesus, the great physician. That's all he's got left. Jesus sees this man and his need and his hurt and his pain and his worry. And Jesus has compassion upon Jairus. And Jesus and the disciples get up and they follow Jairus with a large group of people thronging them. So that he may go indeed to his daughter and lay hands on his daughter So Jesus and the group are going. But as they go, something happens along the way. As they're walking through the town, through the village, something happens along the way. There's all these people pressing in around Jesus. But a woman who has been suffering, a a, a daughter in Israel who has been suffering for 12 years, approaches Jesus by faith. Now again, look at her faith. Little faith. But she too sees something in Jesus that she needs. Now I think she's probably kind of embarrassed. right? She's probably kind of embarrassed by her illness. She knows what's going on in her her body. She's embarrassed. She had this problem for 12 years. Nothing's been able to be done. Matthew relates a flow of blood that just doesn't seem like it can be healed. She's tried everything. Mark tells us that she suffered from so many so-called cures from the hands of the physician. She suffered at the hands of the physicians. She spent all her money in trying to get better, but it's gotten worse. To no avail. Now, is this flow of blood a big deal? I mean, again, we, we don't think in... The first century Israel's thoughts and what's going on there. It's a big deal. This flow of blood that she has is a big deal. She's probably anemic and is suffering physically, probably run down, but we leave it at that. Right? We as Americans leave it at that. Well, she just never feels right. 
She's got to get the right combination of doctor stuff and then she'll be okay. Right? But secondly, and we, we stop there, but secondly, she's alienated from the Israelite community. Okay? She's alienated. She's isolated from the Israelite community. Having a flow of blood makes her unclean, and she's been having this flow of blood for 12 years straight. She's been unclean, according to the law, for 12 years. She can't be touched by others. She can't touch others, otherwise they become unclean. It's almost like leprosy. If she's married, if she got married before all of this happened, that hurts her relationship with her husband. Right? Anytime her husband touches her, he's now unclean. Until he passes the amount of time of separation from her. Right? Now we don't know if she's married, but this happened before she was married? It shoots any prospect for a husband. Right? So she can't be touched by others. And she wasn't allowed to participate in the worshiping community. She couldn't go to synagogue. She couldn't go to the temple where the unclean weren't allowed. For 12 years she battled this isolation that seems hopeless and incurable. She's tried everything. Nothing works. I'm getting worse. But then Jesus comes along. And she hears about him. She, she hear, hears that he's a healer. There's hope for her. Here is a powerful man. She recognizes that he has power. And she thinks to herself, maybe somewhat superstitiously, right? If I just go and, and touch his garment, perhaps that will be enough power for me to be healed. She had faith that Jesus was the answer. She had faith that Jesus was the answer. Though it was faith in its infancy, she probably didn't understand who Jesus was in fullness. She knew and believed, though, that he could take care of her need, her problem, her illness, somehow. And so she came through the crowd and she touched hold of the border of his garment. And, and we read... And Mark, immediately the fountain of blood was dried up. And she left, and she felt in her body that she was healed of affliction. Get that. She touches the garment of Jesus, and immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed. Her isolation stopped. And she was right, she was healed. But something went awry in her plans. Her plans, the things didn't go the way she had planned. She's just going to sneak up, touch Jesus' garment, and get back in the crowd, right? Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? Right? Uh oh. Things aren't going quite the way she had planned. And the disciples said to him, Lord, what are you talking about? You see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? Come on! Everybody's touching you! 
There's people all around you. What are you talking about? Who touched you? And Jesus looked around to see her who had done this thing. Okay? She was caught. Now Jesus had caught her. And this wasn't an accident on Jesus' part. Like, okay, it caught him by surprise. It didn't catch him by surprise. Jesus knows what's going on, right? He knows the thoughts of people. We see that over and over again in the scriptures. He knows what's going on, right? And so he turns around. And he says, and he, and he says, who touched me? In his grace, you see, Jesus confronts her for her sake. Jesus confronts her for her sake, right? It wasn't what she wanted, right? She just wanted to touch and be gone. She wanted to touch him, get healed, and meld back into the crowd. But you see, that wasn't what was best for her. And Jesus is about doing what's best for us. You see, she would have done what we so often do. Right? We're, we're like her, right? We're going to do the same thing if we can. We're going to settle for what Christ has done for us rather than knowing Christ himself face to face. Right? We just want to settle at, I've been saved. That's good. That's all I need. Right? But Jesus doesn't allow that. Right? Jesus brings stuff out into the open so that we have to deal with it. And he's doing that with this woman. Face to face. Jesus looks around and he sees her there. You know what? She's fearful. When we read Luke 8, we see, Now, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, right? she was not hidden anymore, she came to Jesus trembling. With fear and trembling. And she falls down before him. And she declared to him, get this, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. You know, in a sense, she confesses to Jesus. See, Jesus confronts us, he knows us, right? He knows us, right? He's omniscient, omnipresent, right? In in him, as fully God, he knows these things. He's God incarnate. We can't hide from him. He knows the fears, the hurts, the pains, the isolation that we have, that this woman has, right? And he confronts her, so that, her, so that her healing is made public. For her sake. For her sake. To take her out of the isolation that she has. Because she would probably remain much more isolated. Continue on in her isolation in some way. But he brings it public and he says, look, you've been healed. You've been healed. And more importantly... He confronts her so that she has to deal face-to-face with her Savior. So that she has to deal face-to-face with her Savior, with her God who knows her. 
right? Who knows her, knows what she's going through. And Jesus shows her the character of God before her. This is God who loves you, daughter. He shows her mercy and does not demand sacrifice for her, right? In the text, a couple, a little ways up, right? I have to get my glasses here. In chapter 9, when the tax collectors are questioning Jesus and, and all of that for eating with the, the tax collectors, when, when the Pharisees are, are questioning Jesus about eating with the tax collectors, up in 9 verse 13, Jesus tells them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Okay? Jesus is doing that right there. He's showing mercy. He's not demanding sacrifice from her. He is her sacrifice. Right? He is her healing. And he says to her, and as we see this, look at just such sweet compassion as he talks to her. He says, be of good cheer, daughter. Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And Mark adds, go in peace and be healed of your afflictions. You see, Jesus focuses on her faith here. Your faith has made you well. Not your superstition. Chuck that aside. It's your faith. And though your faith is like a little mustard seed and it's imperfect and immature, he tells her the important thing that she needs to remember. Trust. Have faith in me. Faith in the living God who is standing right here before you, looking in your eyes. And Jesus calls her the most loving thing that he can. Daughter. Right? Daughter. Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. But think of this too. How glorious and sweet is this, that that Jesus is on a mission to go to the ruler's house and see his daughter, who is on the brink of death, who is sick, but he doesn't say to this woman who has come up and touched his hem of his garment, who has such a need, he doesn't go and say and turn around to her and say, look, why did you do that? I don't have time for you. Does he? Right? He's on a mission, he's doing something, he's busy, he's got something to do. But he doesn't say to the one who has need, get away from me. I don't have time to deal with your problems. I've got a bigger problem. This girl's going to die. Instead, he takes care of her need. And that means Jesus is never too busy for you either. Right? God's never put off by your coming to him, no matter what's going on. He says things like, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's exactly what he does to this woman, right? Now, as he's talking and finishing up with his, this daughter of Israel, who needed attention, who needed to be confronted with her Savior, the ruler's friends at that time come and give some very disheartening news to the ruler, to Jairus, as Mark relates. Some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter's dead. Your daughter has died. Don't worry the teacher anymore. Don't bother the teacher any further. Let Jesus go on his way. It's too late. He missed the opportunity. 
She's dead. You see, Jesus had another mission in mind. None of this is outside of what his plan is. This is all exactly according to God's plan. He's sovereign over all of these things. Christ was there to make alive again. Just like with Lazarus, right? He's telling his disciples, look. Well, first he says she's asleep, and they're like, oh, okay, well, he'll probably be able to be healed, right? And then he says, look, he's dead, okay? And I'm glad that he's dead because you need to see the power of the resurrection. It's the same thing here. Jesus is there to make alive again. This was all in his plans to show who he is as the son of the living God incarnate before him. He's not disturbed by this news. Jesus doesn't fall into despair over this news. But he knows that the father is, right? He knows that the father is distraught. His daughter's dead. I came to Jesus to help my daughter, and he, he wasted his time dealing with this woman. If he'd just been there two minutes earlier, if he just got there, she would, right? You can imagine what's going on in the father. And Jesus says to the ruler, he says to Jairus, don't be afraid. Right? Just like Isaiah 35, don't be afraid. Only believe she will be made well. Look at me. Jairus, look at me. Do not be afraid. Only believe and she will be made well. Notice that Jesus is directing this man's fears and sorrows to have his eyes and heart fixed upon Jesus, to keep his focus on the great physician who has healed. He's just healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Someone unclean, just as his dead daughter now is unclean. But Jesus deals in the unclean, right? And by his touch, he makes clean. Jesus deals in death, and by his touch, he makes alive and heals and gives wholeness. Now, here's a scene in Matthew and Mark and Luke. I've kind of combined them together. So if you want to see it, you can read it all, all the different accounts. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and, and he saw a tumult, and those who wept and wailed loudly. And Matthew adds in, and he saw the flute players. This is all a part of the morning. And when Jesus came in, he said to them, why are you making all this commotion and weeping? And then he permitted no one to go in except Peter and James and John and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her. But he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. The professional mourners had already shown up. The mourners are wailing. The flute players are playing their death songs. It's a scene of despair and noise and confusion. Just like death is, right? And Jesus says, don't weep. She's not dead but sleeping. But they know. They know she's dead. They're professionals. Right? They've been around death. They're professional mourners. They know. Right? It's like having a hospice worker there. 
right? Who takes your temperature, takes all the readings for you, and declares you dead. This is what they have done. This is where she is. She's dead. They know it. And so they immediately change, right? They've been mourning and doing all the all that stuff, right? Playing their flutes. And, all, and they change immediately and they ridicule Jesus. The text literally says they're laughing him to scorn at his face. Right? They don't believe Jesus at all. They're laughing him to scorn at his face. They're mocking Jesus. Well, Jesus is unaffected by them. And he goes in with Peter and James and John and Jairus and his wife. And Jesus takes the girl by the hand and he says, little girl, arise. And she does. And she does. Talitha kumi. Little girl, arise. And she gets up. Now, let's not miss the point that Matthew and the other gospel writers are making here. Remember, one of the major themes that Matthew is dealing with that I've brought up as I've been coming is the fact of Jesus' authority. Okay? Jesus' authority. That he not only taught with authority, unlike the scribes as the Sermon on the Mount ends, but he backed that authority up with action, and that's what you are seeing in chapters 8 and 9. Time after time after time after time again, you see Jesus' authority being expressed. And get the point here. These people are confronted here with the living God in the flesh who has the ability to take dead and make alive. He has the power to take the dead and make alive. The leper, right? The leper. We talked about the leper, I don't know, months ago, right? I remember preaching that sermon here, (laughs) okay? And he made, that was as good as dead. A leper was as good as dead. There was no healing that would occur. And he made alive, right? He took the paralyzed, who also had no hope of recovery, and made him alive. He took the demon-possessed, made him alive. Those who thought they were dead out on the raging sea. But here, Jesus touches the dead. The real dead. The dead dead, right? The dead daughter that everyone knows is dead. She's already been proclaimed dead by the hospice workers. And he shows his power over death here. Right? They had just said, don't bother the teacher anymore. Forget it. She's dead. She's gone. Al Kaput. She's gone. Don't bother Jesus anymore, Jairus. And Jesus comes in and he says, little girl, arise. And she does and it amazes and astonishes everyone who witnessed such a thing. And it can't be contained. Jesus in, in Mark and Luke says, don't say anything about this. But Mark, that's not what Matthew says. Right? Let's see what Matthew says there. He says, and the report went out into all the land. Because they couldn't contain it. How do you contain that? How do you keep that silent? Jesus wants them and, and Mark and, and Luke to focus on the right things. Okay? To focus on Jesus. So again, there's no, no controversy between the texts. So often we get lost in our despair and hopelessness. 
right? So often we get lost in our despair and hopelessness and we forget the remedy to all that is God himself. To know God. To know Jesus Christ. That is the thing that we need to always be reminded of. Because our great God brings our focus upon him. We see that over and over again in the texts here. You see what happened to Joseph when he saw that God was working in his life and he knew God personally and intimately. Not just by a set of propositions, but he knew God. Joseph could say, what God, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. And Job, when God directed Job to look at him, right? That's what all Job chapter, beginning in chapter 38 to the end of the text is about Job being focused upon who God is. That's what we need. When we are falling into hopelessness and despair, we need to focus upon God himself. To look to him in these things. And when that happens to Job, everything became clear. His focus became clear. His eyes weren't blurry anymore when he was confronted with the living God. That's when things change from hopelessness and despair in Job to trust and hope and faith in the living God. The same thing happened to the bleeding woman. When she looked to Christ in her small way with her little bit of tiny mustard seed-like faith, she was confronted with and met the great God of heaven, the great physician who changed her. And she could have hope and peace Again, as well as the ruler Jairus was compelled to trust Jesus, right? In the midst of all of this despair that he's feeling, right? He, Jesus, directs his attention to him, God incarnate. And it changed him. It changed him, changed his daughter. She who was dead is now alive. And isn't it the same for us? Right? Isn't it the same for us yet today? God brings his salvation to us through his son who is broken for us and whose blood was shed so that we might experience and know his justification. That our sins might be atoned for. But you see, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. That's not all there is. Let's not leave it there at just simply salvation. Let's not leave it right there, but let's grab hold of it. Okay? Let's pursue it. Let's pursue the living and true God so that we might know Him and be filled with hope and faith and trust in Him, the personal and living and true God. That's our calling first and foremost as Christians to know Him. Not propositions about Him, but to know Him, to seek Him and his kingdom, and you know what? Then everything else will be added unto us, right? Everything else will fall into place when we know him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this text, and we thank you for the power and might that you show forth in Jesus through this text. We thank you that you are the living and true God. And Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes of faith, To see him. Oh Lord, to see you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how you are working as one God. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are great and almighty 
over everything that takes place. And that we are able, because of what your Son has done, and because of your sending forth the Spirit to give us new life, that we are able to have faith and trust in you. Drive that home into us, we pray. And now we, as your people, pray together as your Son, so wonderfully said his prayer for them is that they may be able to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. The love of our Savior in all its fullness and its sweetness and greatness passes all human comprehension. It is beyond our full understanding and yet Paul prays that we would know it. We have to conclude then that despite its vastness, the love of Christ is something for us to grasp. Like the deepest of oceans can still be explored where the farthest reaches of the universe can still be searched out, so also the love of God in Christ is ours to know. We must know it, but we need help. And here at the Lord's table, we have been given an aid in our endeavor to know the love of Christ. This meal is a visible and tangible sign of his love. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who from all eternity was enthroned in heaven, the object of all the praise of the angels, the creator of all things, became one of us. But not just any man. He was a man of sorrows, of no reputation, and he gave himself over to, over to be crucified for us and to suffer the agony of the full wrath of the Father for our sin. This is love. His life given so that our lives could be saved. His body broken so that ours could be whole. His blood shed so that we who are unclean could be purified. So come to the Lord's table and receive the sign of his love for you. Partake of it and let his love fill your minds with amazement and your hearts with adoring gratitude. Christ's body, broken for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.